Hey everybody, welcome back to the RICU podcast. Here at the Research ICU, we are reviving research among med students, keeping you up to date on all the latest clinical research published in top-tier medical journals in 15 minutes or less. This week's episode on pandas has a bonus episode where our new co-host, Yisrael, interviews a pediatrician to help clarify the latest research on pandas and how it translates into clinical practice. Yisrael, why don't you start off by introducing yourself? My name is Yisrael Grebe. I'm a fourth-year medical student from Long Island. I have a strong interest in primary care, and I'm really excited to be a part of the show today. Good morning, Dr. Kapowitz. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? My name is Dr. Joseph Kapowitz. I am an attending at Borough Park Pediatric Associates in Borough Park, as well as an attending in Precious Health in Lakewood. I am also an associate clinical professor of pediatrics in NYU School of Medicine. Just if you can give the audience like a recommendation outside of medicine for trainees like myself or for you know anything that you know you do outside of medicine that you find that is helpful as a provider and you would recommend to trainees. Um, generally, you should find something else that you like to do in terms of a hobby or other things like that. There are many hobbies actually that I have personally. I play piano. Um, I actually enjoy gardening. I do my own garden in my backyard. And I also have fish that I'm very attached to where we have babies and we have some goldfish. So those are the other things that I'm currently into. That's um, awesome. As well as well, trying to be active. I used to, when I was younger, I used to love doing uh, exercise and sports. I mean, for a while, I did have a personal trainer and do some exercise, which I really enjoyed. I really want to try to get back into that. But that's uh, what I would recommend, to have something else going on in your life besides medicine, because otherwise it'll be very difficult just to have that one focus with nothing else, with no other outlet. That's great, and thanks for sharing that. I'm sure the audience will definitely appreciate that. So just to get on with the case, we have a case of an eight-year-old boy that was born full-term. There have been no complications. Uh, there are no complications with both the delivery or prior to presentation at your clinic. The patient has no significant past medical history. He presents the clinic with his mom today who reports that the teachers at the PTA meeting were noticing some behaviors that made them concerned. They said that he's suddenly become more fidgety in class, irritable, inattentive, and they're concerned about this. And they were hoping that the mom can facilitate some sort of meeting to possibly have some intervention. So the mom had said that since this meeting, she's also noticed some funny behaviors at home, such as, for example, repetitive hand washing and a preoccupation with bathing. She also reports that there's some regression in maturity, such as the child being afraid to leave the house in the morning on the school bus, whereas previously this has not been a concern. He's always been a picky eater, but recently he's been refusing to finish dinner. He frequently reports that he feels full and doesn't want to eat. He's otherwise feeling well. His vital signs are normal, and his height and weight are appropriate for his age. He's up to date on all his immunizations. Dr. Kaplowitz, what is your thought process, and what is your work differential diagnosis for this patient? Well, generally, anytime you have a case with a patient that's coming in with some sort of psychological, psychiatric, or neurological break, the first thing, at least from since I am a primary care provider, is that we want to rule it out from a medical perspective first. We want to make sure that there's no medical reason causing the psych issue. Usually that results in me drawing a lot of blood work. We want to make sure that their CBC is totally normal. We want to make sure that there's no electrolyte abnormalities that could cause neurological disturbance. We want to make sure that there's no viruses going on. We want to make sure that their thyroid is totally fine. Certain viruses have been known to do it. And also, we want to make sure there's no Lyme disease. There's such a thing as Lyme psychosis. So there are a whole host of different labs that I run basically to see, really to rule out just really from a medical perspective, is there any medical cause to this? That's usually the first 
go-to method that I have when I'm trying to work some of these kids up. So that makes sense, sort of to rule out the, in general, uh, things that would be more common in this population, this age group. And so just, you'd mentioned some laboratory investigations. So if you could name some specifically, I'm assuming, you know, to look at CBC or BMP, but you'd mentioned some other infectious etiologies that are possible. So uh, in terms of your routine workup, what else would you add to this panel? Something I also look at is sometimes mycoplasma. I find, at least in the pediatric world, and as you call in the adult world, syphilis is the great imitator. In the pediatric world, I find mycoplasma does a lot of weird and bizarre things, from behavior to as well as different rashes. And like I said, it's a pretty bizarre disease that does sometimes like very strange things. When you have a strange case in front of you, like one of the things I always tell either residents and medical students, go look at a mycoplasma. You never know that that actually may come out positive and that may be the answer to your problem. I sometimes have found that to be very useful. Once you done your medical workup, then the next thing to think of is now all the psych or psychiatric problems that could possibly be going on. Some of it could be obsessive compulsive disorder, Tourette's syndrome, ADHD. Is there really true schizophrenia, bipolar disorder? Is there some sort of PTSD going on? You know, then the question is, is this some sort of an autoimmune encephalitis? PANDAS now basically has been, at least for, for the people studying it and researching it, really falls under that rubric, I think, more than anything else, is really that it's a form of autoimmune encephalitis. I think that they're still trying to work out what the actual antibody is that's actually doing it. And they're also trying to still research true modalities of actually showing that it exists either on imaging right now there is some new studies showing that the basal ganglia does light up differently in patients with pandas even as comparing them to cases of ocd which is exciting news actually that we can actually now finally have a way to possibly objectively diagnose these kids not just based upon clinical symptoms oh so it seems that PAN does is a diagnosis of exclusion. And you had mentioned several other psychiatric and infectious etiologies. So I'm assuming if the basic blood work you're going to do comes back negative, and if we consider any psychiatric pathology and, you know, the patient may not meet the DSM criteria for those, you'd be more likely to entertain the possibility of like an autoimmune process going on. So at that point, are there any sort of lab tests that you can perform to confirm this diagnosis? Yeah, well, well, I mean, some of them yes, some of them no. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the difference between PANS and PANDAS. So PANDAS is usually when it's associated specifically with a strep infection. And PANS, which is they realize that this disease is, is really more broad and not just really solely related to strep, but it can be related to other diseases and infections, such as Lyme disease, such as mycoplasma, such as even mono or, or CMV or any other viral process theoretically could cause patients to be triggered to go into the, start having these symptoms. And really the diagnosis is more based upon the symptoms and you're trying to use your lab tests to really like I rule out a lot of the other things that can be around. So for example, one of the first things you want to do is just to even just get a throat culture, make sure the kid doesn't have active strep currently. Another thing that you sometimes do is to get strep antibodies, an ASO number and a DNASP number, just like in rheumatic fever or in sometimes um, septic arthritis. If you don't have a diagnosed strep, you sometimes look to those numbers just to see if a strep infection was recent. That's basically the purpose of using those is just to prove that there is a strep infection going on. Many times you try to look at vitamin D levels have sometimes been looked at as well. And also many times you also want to look at even just their immunoglobulin levels just to make sure like they're not IgA deficient or if there's not some other immunological problem currently going on that maybe could possibly explain this neurological or psychiatric break that the patient currently is experiencing. Okay, so just to, to go back to our case, our eight-year-old boy denies any symptoms currently. 
Although the mom does endure some sick contact, there is a five-year-old daughter in the house who right now has a group A strep infection and has been on antibiotics for several days. And previously, his two-year-old sister also had some sort of upper respiratory infection, but when brought to the pediatrician, there was no concern for a group A strep infection, and it was just wrote off as being viral in etiology and is being managed currently with a supportive management for that. So can you just clarify... There is some sort of concern that some forms of strep are harder to eradicate than others, and some forms of strep tend to linger in families, maybe ping-ponging from one child to another in a given family. And, you know, in the pediatric world, there is a notion maybe not to test children under a certain age for a group A strep infection. So is this a concern, and is this uh, clinically significant? Well, yeah, sometimes that is a concern. Sometimes even a patient being exposed to strep who has had pandas symptoms or symptomology before can trigger them to go back into their symptoms. So therefore, that is definitely a concern. Sometimes strep is very hard to eradicate for a number of reasons. First of all, the tonsils aren't a flat surface. They have tiny nukes and crannies. Therefore, that allows strep to hide many times in these little areas. And even if you're using even stronger levels of antibiotic, it doesn't necessarily eradicate. And sometimes you need to go to tonsillectomy because that's sometimes the only way to get rid of it. In terms of a carrier, there are really two cases. So let's just step back for a second. The reason why we treat strep infections in general is really to prevent rheumatic fever. Now, in order for the antibodies to do damage, they have to have receptors to attach to. Those receptors don't form until age two or possibly even age three. That's the reason why the American Academy of Pediatrics doesn't recommend antibiotic treatment for these patients because it can't get rheumatic fever and strep is something our bodies could fight by itself. Yes, the child can end up unfortunately becoming very sick and miserable, but it's not something that the body won't be able to, to take care of by itself. So that's sort of the reason why we don't treat strep in kids under the age of two. Now, there are two real exceptions to that story. One is the one that you mentioned, where sometimes you have certain strains of strep that don't seem to like go away. Like families just keep coming in. Uh, you know, it's, if it's not one kid, it's the other kids. I mean, there are times where I just even tell the parents, you know what, well, after this strep, we're just going to culture the entire family and just see if someone's a carrier. Now, what a carrier is, of course, is someone who has the disease, but they themselves are not and showing any signs or symptoms of it. But they're very nice to go and share it with other people. I mean, the famous... Um, case of a carrier was, of course, typhoid Mary. What they did was kind of horrible to her. But that was sort of the first case in medical literature that you really saw what a carrier is. So therefore, there is some cases in terms of strep where there are carriers as well. And therefore, carriers many times have to be treated. Many times that is the baby in the house. I've had that. And therefore, that baby, many times you put them on stronger rounds of antibiotics, many times even something as strong as clindamycin to eradicate strep from them and, and to have them stop sharing it from the families. Um, also, the ping pong nature, I mean, it sometimes also depends upon the size of the family, the living quarters that the family's in, and also the school situation. Many of these schools are in very cramped conditions where you have... 30, 35 kids in one classroom that probably could have, should only have really 15 to 20. You sometimes have also living quarters at home where you're going to have, at least in the populations that I serve, you're talking about, you know, many of these families have anywhere between six to sometimes 12 kids in, you know, three bedroom apartments that's not necessarily big enough for the amount of kids that they have, which also contributes to strep just spreading a lot more easily just because of the nature of how close everyone, a close contact everyone is in. 
so that totally makes sense. Getting back to our case, the his lab studies are remarkable for a positive anti-streptolysin O titer and a B-strep antibody, which is consistent with the history of you know the, the mom saying that there was some sort of sick contact, there was some exposure to confirmed strep. And so at this point, we're likely to say that this may not be some sort of organic pathology, but might be an autoimmune process. And so moving on or segueing towards treatment, how would you first approach managing this patient who has previously never been diagnosed with an autoimmune process before? So like once we've come to the conclusion that we think that this is PANDAS, and you know, PANDAS has very specific symptomatology, and then the way that we come to the diagnosis is basically that there is a diagnosed strep or diagnosed some sort of other virus in the recent past, and then based upon that, we see certain symptoms that come out. First of all, we see the patient starting to you know, have OCD type of behaviors. We saw in our patient case, you know, starting to be obsessed with washing their hands and cleanliness. And sometimes that could be running around in circles. Sometimes um, that OCD behavior could also be with um, neurological tics or the other things that you sometimes see. You sometimes see shoulder shrugging, eye blinking, constant sniffling. I mean, I had one patient that was sniffling so badly that he ended up um, giving himself a pneumomediostinum from the amount of, uh, of air he kept on taking in from how many sniffles he was taking. So you either have one of those two processes going on, which is OCD type of behavior or neurological tics. And together with that, you see a sudden onset of nighttime urination or enuresis. Most of these patients were toilet trained and all of a sudden they start having accidents again. And the parents just want to know what's going on. Of course, you want to get a urine to rule out that it shouldn't be, again, organic pathology. But all of a sudden you start seeing that these are things that start happening. Sometimes they are anorexic, meaning they don't want to start eating or they stop eating things that they used to love. You know, it's like they used to love ice cream and all of a sudden they're just not eating it. Another thing that I sometimes find is that their handwriting sometimes starts becoming very different is that all of a sudden that they, you know, they're not able to write normally, which is, which is also kind of bizarre that, you know, when it shows up like this. So now focusing now more on treatment, so usually there are different gradations in terms of treatment. So usually, at least in the outpatient setting where I practice, we usually start with antibiotics. Generally, we either use an azithromycin or sometimes a cephalosporin. We sometimes use an omniceph or a ceftonir. Many times we find that we're not using them for their antibiotic properties, but more for their anti-inflammatory properties. Um, sometimes we even use Motrin as well. Many times I give my patients either like a two-week trial, sometimes even a month trial, depending upon the severity of the case, to see to see if the parents notice any differences. Do they see that the you know behavior got better, or the behavior got worse? Though, you know, what does the antibiotics do? And based upon that, we either choose to continue or we choose to stop if we don't see that it's necessarily working for the child. Now, some kids are very severe. Then usually, if I feel that kids really still have pandas and we are really not getting anywhere with antibiotics, many times I do refer them on to neurologists who deal with it specifically, again, because it's under this rubric, as I mentioned before, of autoimmune encephalopathy. So many times I'll send them off to a neurologist who will work to get them, try to get them IVIG treatments, who will try to get them sometimes plasmapheresis treatments, even steroid treatments, in terms of you know using other modalities to try to treat them, just as you would try to treat any case of an encephalopathy. The, again, the goal is to try to mitigate the autoimmune process that's going on. Okay, so how soon after you begin treatment uh, would you like this patient to return to clinic for follow-up? And after how many weeks of follow-up, a less of a response than you would like to see, would you consider a different diagnosis than an autoimmune process? Well, I still think that part of the discussion I have with all my patients is I refuse to believe that everything in the world is pandas and we throw out the whole entire textbook of neurology and psychiatry. We still have to, to make sure that all the other possibilities in our differential that we mentioned a lot earlier 
are ruled out? Is this just good old-fashioned OCD? Or are we just seeing normal neurological tics, which is much more common than PANDAS? So sometimes in conjunction, many times I'll have my patients already starting with a psychologist or already starting with a neurologist, even from the get-go. So that way, we're sort of doing a two-pronged attack at the same time, where we are working up to make sure if there are any of the other diagnoses that could possibly be causing this are already starting to be worked on. And if it is PANDAS, then hopefully we'll see the difference once medicine is on board. We'll start seeing that the symptomatology will start getting better and improving. So like I said, I usually give them sometimes two weeks to a month, depending upon the patient. And I want to see that there is some difference. Many times I try, if, I, if once I do see that there is a difference or that the parents are happy with the response, I sometimes then keep them on the medicine, sometimes for a month, sometimes two months, sometimes three. Again, it depends upon the patient, depends upon the severity of symptoms, it depends upon how well they are doing on it. Then what I try to many times do is just to wean them off their antibiotics, where many times I'll have them, instead of just doing it every day, we'll start weaning it down to, you know, two to three times a week. And then sometimes then to substitute the antibiotics, since again, we're, like I mentioned before, we're using it for its anti-inflammatory properties, not its antibiotic properties. I then would then convert them to Motrin, also for the same amount of times for a week. Usually that whole process takes about a month until I get them off to Motrin and off of Motrin, then to basically off of everything. Hopefully the parents get their child back. Okay, so... Back to our case, uh, our eight-year-old boy was started on some antibiotics, and after a week or two, the teachers are noticing that some of these behaviors are becoming extinguished. Some of the inattentiveness that they originally saw is becoming more attenuated. This getting back to the way he used to be. Um, at home, the mom is noticing that a lot of the behaviors that were once an issue are no longer problematic. And my question now is, are there any recommendations for families to engage in maybe sort of behavioral counseling, aside from getting, let's say, the teachers and the parents on board with pediatrician, you know, so that it's a group effort? Are there any sort of interventions that can sort of have a synergistic effect with these antibiotics and the medical therapy that you're offering them? Absolutely. I mean, I think like any psychiatric condition or psychological condition, many times we see that therapy together with medicine actually is supreme in general. We see that the outcomes are much, much better for patients when they're doing not just therapy by itself, but many times medicine with therapy. And like I mentioned to you before, that I generally try to tell patients that we may have to get a psychologist on board to help with the OCD types of behaviors as well. Meaning that, you know, I like to usually use them both in conjunction for two reasons. One is that in case this really isn't PANDAS, we're still not ignoring the fact that this patient now has a really OCD or that this patient has neurological tics. You know, if it's neurological tics, then it's with a neurologist. But again, that therefore, that on the chance that we're wrong, we're already giving them the treatment for the next step on my differential. And on the chance that we're right, I think that will give you a nice synergistic effect where sometimes these kids get better a lot quicker. Thank you very much, Dr. Kapovitz. This case has been really enlightening. I certainly have learned a lot of information that I haven't previously known about this diagnosis and the treatment. And if you could just give one take-home point, maybe like a salient take-home point that you want the audience to know about the diagnosis and treatment of PANDAS before we wrap up. Again, I still think that you have to have an open mind coming to it. I still think that there needs to be more research done to have a, a standard way of diagnosis, a standard way of treatment. And I think that right now it's still a disease in its infancy in terms of us understanding A, how it works, and B, how to diagnose and treat it. So I do think that with further research down the road, I think that you know probably in the next five to 10 years, there will be major breakthroughs in this field. For example, I find that they're talking about already that you know, the stand, there's a research group in Stanford that may have already genes that are linked to it. There's a group in, like the one in Boston, where they found changes on MRI. They were also working on looking for an antibody, and, and hopefully that that research will 
be fruitful. So this is a disease really in flux, and it's a disease that hopefully will be able to have a more standard approach to it, I think, in the years to come. Well, once again, this has been super informative. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Kapovitz, today. Okay, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Yisrael and Dr. Kaplovitz, for joining us on today's podcast. If you guys have any questions, comments, or complaints, please send them to therikuteam at gmail.com. And please join us and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Team. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.